I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, grab your Bibles this morning, turn to Hebrews chapter 5, and Lord willing, we're going to finish out uh, this chapter together this morning. We've been working our way through Hebrews for some time, and uh, I am astounded, uh, every week astounded, again and again, freshly, how a document that was written 2,000 years ago can provide such piercing, timely, relevant clarity for my soul and for the church today. Um, I experience that each week in preparation for Sunday, and I think, okay, I've been astounded, and then the next week, maybe I won't be, and yet again and again and again, it astounds me, the piercing clarity that God gives to us as he speaks to us wonderful and timeless truths from 2,000 years ago. And so in Hebrews chapter 5, we've been introduced to Jesus, the prophet king, uh, or prior to chapter 5, Jesus, the prophet king. He's the divine son. He's the king of the universe. He rules over all. And he has been sent by God. When we get to chapter 5, we begin to see Jesus presented to us now as our great high priest. We see that he's a sympathetic priest. He's a perfect priest. And he is your great high priest if you trust in him. And so chapter 5 begins in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men, so this is all the high priests from the Levitical order, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also... In the exact same way then, Jesus as the old Levitical priesthood, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As, he, as also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, a divine son, a perfect son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so, so far we saw as we looked at last week that this Jesus is a powerful priest and he's a, a patient priest. Right? He's the very priest that you and I need. He's the exact kind of savior that we need in our weakness. He prays. He brings us to God. He mediates on our behalf. He's sympathetic toward us because he knows our weakness. He's a sufficient sacrifice. He's better than any human priest because he never dies. He never sins. He never grows weary. He never gets tired. He never has to offer a sacrifice for himself. His submission to the Father was always perfect. His obedience was always perfect. He's perfect in his love. And he is a priest who lives forever. It's exactly the kind of Savior that you and I need, and it's the kind of Savior that God gave us in Jesus. And so this is good news. Last week as a church, we were encouraged by this good news. My soul was encouraged to reflect again on the greatness of the Savior that God has given me in Jesus Christ. And I heard from many of you, it's an old, old story that we could hear again and again and again and be reminded of God's love for us in Jesus Christ to undeserving sinners. 
And you think that message is, is so good, how could you not possibly just believe it and receive it with joy? Well, the author has just shared this wonderful good news to the church. He's, he's just started to dip his toe into how wonderful of a priest Jesus is. Look at what he interjects in verse 11. About this. This being Jesus as a Melchizedekian high priest. So Jesus fulfilling this new order, this new priesthood. About this, we have much to say. Actually, I have a whole section of the sermon that I want to devote to the Melchizedekian priesthood. And it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child or an infant, really. But solid food, verse 14, is for the mature For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. My friends, those would be very hard words to hear if you were the church that was receiving this letter. Those are not easy words to be told. Um, Just ask a group of children, right? How much do they like when someone says, You're just a big baby? You're a baby. You're babyish. What you said sounds like a baby. You're acting like a baby. No one likes to be called a baby. And you'd hear this author who's writing to the church about the glories of Christ in the middle of talking about how great Jesus is. Actually, just barely introducing it, he stops and he says, I want to tell you more about him, but I can't because you guys can't handle the truth. You guys are babies. A loving shepherd who cares for the sheep says hard things when they're beneficial, when they're true, when they need to be said. And so rather than the author just saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace, hey, I'll just let you kind of have a a distant appreciation of Jesus and, and maybe think that because you hear him talked about in this letter, you're suddenly mature in Christ. I'm actually just going to cut it straight and I'm going to tell you how I see it. The question that this text brings for you The text that has challenged me this week is, are you growing and maturing in the faith? Are you growing and maturing in the faith? And I would even say it this way, not have you grown or matured in the faith, but today are you growing and maturing in the faith? I've known people that will talk about some amazing season of spiritual growth they had 20 years ago. It's not really what the author is after today. Are you today growing in Christ? If you are, praise God and let this text be a help to you to spur you on in your growth and be encouraged by God's work in you. If you profess faith in Jesus, but right now you'd say, honestly, I'm not growing right now. I'm in a stagnant season. I'm in a dry season. I'm I'm not really spurred on in the Lord. Then hear this as a gentle but firm wake-up call. This is a gentle but firm wake-up call. It's not unloving, it is gracious, but it is a warning that it is not okay to not be growing as a Christian. 
And finally, if you're here today and you have not placed your trust in this God-man Jesus to be your Savior, then you need to be saved. Now, if you've been here for a while, as we've worked through Hebrews, we're finding the same pattern keeps happening. Right? Chapter 1, the glories of Christ. And then chapter 2 begins with what? A warning. Here's the glory of Jesus Christ. Pay attention and don't drift away. Beginning of chapter 2. Then, the glories of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6. If you hold fast. If you don't harden your heart. If you keep hearing the voice of God. We get out of that very long warning section in chapter 4 all the way to the beginning of chapter 5. He starts talking about the glories of Christ. We're just a few verses in. And then all of a sudden he's issuing another warning. To not become dull of hearing and stay a spiritual baby. See what's happening is that the, the preacher is concerned that in all the familiarity with Christ and all the familiarity with the gospel that the message would go forth and there would be those who are not profiting and benefiting from the glory of Christ. And, and he's concerned that they wouldn't get up and leave unaware of that. And so he's saying, I want to tell you how great Jesus is, and then I want to make sure that you're, you're trusting in him. You're not just appreciating him from a distance, but he's the one whom you are relying upon. I couldn't help as I just reflected this week. Surely God knows my spiritual dullness. And he knows your spiritual dullness too. And so he's patiently saying, I'm going to remind you about who Jesus is, and then I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to call you to cling to him. See, not only do we need to be reminded of how great Jesus is, but we need to pause and reflect and evaluate if we're simply casually appreciating another sermon, another homily on Christ. Or for us, it's actually our spiritual life. And that as we hear of him, we trust him all the more. We believe him all the more. We listen to his voice all the more. This morning's sermon is entitled, Leaving Spiritual Neverland. Leaving Spiritual Neverland. A friend of mine made that association to Neverland from this text. And I just thought, there's no way I can improve upon it. So I'm just going to use it. Right? Peter Pan was in Neverland. And in Neverland, you never grow up. You just get to stay a child forever. And what the author is concerned about here is a perpetual lack of development, a developmental delay in the life of God's people where they would be perpetually children, perpetually babies forever. And so this morning's message is entitled, Leaving Spiritual Neverland. The outline is this, spiritual babies lack, number one, appetite in verse 11, Spiritual babies lack appetite in verse 11. They lack understanding in verse 12. And they lack discernment in verses 13 and 14. Spiritual babies lack appetite. They lack understanding. And they lack discernment. And so this is really a, an opportunity to, to have the Lord come and do a little heart assessment for you to see if you are a spiritual baby or if you are growing into maturity. What we'll see here is that believers can slowly weaken spiritually over time as they neglect the truth. This, of course, presents a dilemma because you need the truth to grow in the truth, and yet if you neglect the truth, you neglect your ability to grow. And so the author is constrained right now to provide this warning, to issue this concern. And in verse 11, as we read it again, 
he says about this, about this Melchizedekian priest Jesus, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain it to you since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so all of these illustrations are going to pop up from the text. A milk drinker versus a solid food eater. One in need of being taught the basics of Christianity versus one who is able to teach. One who is unskilled in the word of righteousness compared to one who has their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then this analogy of a child or one who is mature, an infant, or an adult. And so spiritual babies, these Christians who are underdeveloped, lack first appetite. So you'd really just say here, do I desire the truth? Do I digest the truth? Do I stomach it? See, the other begins in verse 11. He says, I I have a whole lot to say about this priesthood, and it's difficult. This word for uh, difficult explanation would be uh, when someone would try and recount a dream to someone else. You ever tried to do that? It always sounds a lot better in your head than it does when you explain it to someone else. Someone wakes up and they say, oh, I had this amazing dream, and they're explaining it, and you're like, that doesn't sound very amazing. It's hard to explain a dream. And the author says it's hard to explain this Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, what's interesting is he explains why it's hard to explain. It's not because of the content. Some things are hard to explain because it's hard content. When you try to explain theorems and postulates, I find it hard to explain, hard to comprehend. There's an intelligence quotient involved in your ability to apprehend and comprehend certain things. But here he doesn't say that the problem is the content. And, and other times, maybe the content is easy and the communicator is bad. So the communicator is the problem. Maybe you've been in that situation. You're saying, man, this should not be as difficult as it is right now, but the way you keep explaining that is making it super hard for me to understand. You have the gift of taking an easy concept and making it confusing. But the author's not saying it's hard to explain because the content is so complicated. He's not saying it's hard to explain because he's such a poor communicator. Right? And sometimes uh, in, in courtesy, we'll say something like that. Perhaps I misspoke. And you're like, I know I didn't misspeak. Perhaps I wasn't clear when I said that. And what you really mean is you were clear. And it was their misunderstanding. Now the author actually says, you guys are the reason why you can't understand. It's your own personal responsibility. It's your fault. It's not me, the communicator, and it's not the content. It is you that is the problem. He says, you have become dull of hearing. See, the author is not feeling inadequate as an instructor. doesn't feel like this is some esoteric lofty truth that only a few people could apprehend. It's plain. It's easy to understand if you have an ear to hear it. 
What's amazing here is, is that these people had the ability at one point. It's not that it was beyond their nature. Since you have become dull of hearing, which is indicating that at one point you were receiving it, and now at this point, you've kind of been hit with a spiritual dumb stick. You suddenly can't process the things that you used to be able to process. Instead of, instead of growing and progressing in your ability to understand spiritual truth, you're getting duller and duller and duller. You're getting dumber and dumber and dumber from a spiritual standpoint. You have become, over time, dull of hearing. Things were different at the beginning. The implication is you weren't always this way. Really, the idea of, of dull of hearing is you became lazy or slack in your ears. Sluggish, careless, slow to learn, slow to understand. My friends, this is not due to just the normal human frailty. We're all weak. We're all prone to unbelief. We're all prone to laziness, spiritual dullness. We backslide. It's, it's part of why God calls us together every single week to be reminded of truth. We're that weak. But here, these are people who have, have begun to find that truth is is no longer impacting their souls the way it once did because their spiritual condition has been on the decline. They've started to become dull of hearing. Now they're saying, guys, it's not your pastor's fault. It's not the fault of the Bible study leaders. It's not your spouse or your lack of a spouse. It's not your busyness. It's not your parents. It's not your job. It's not your trials. You are a baby because you're a baby. It's your fault. It's time to grow up. Notice these people didn't stop attending church. That's not the issue. He's not saying since you quit coming to church. He's not saying since you quit reading your, your Bible, you gave up on the Bible reading program partway through the year. He's not saying it's because you're not listening to Christian music or something like that. He's, he's saying all of the content is still coming at you, but there's just this sense of spiritual dullness. Ears that are dull. The Lord has used this analogy through all of the prophets. They'd come to Israel and they would say, uh, Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. Their ears have become dull. They have stubborn shoulders and they've stopped up their ears. That was the analogy in Zechariah 7. They're a rebellious house, Ezekiel 12, 2, who have eyes but see not and ears but hear not. So the picture is of, of hard-heartedness toward the things of God, a lack of spiritual sensitivity, revealed through ears that rather than are inclined and bent toward the truth and receive it humbly, are just not desiring it. There's no appetite. Spurgeon addressed this issue, the lack of appetite for the truth. In a sermon in Isaiah, he said, when we have no delight in listening to the word of God or reading it, it's a gray hair. And he was talking from Isaiah there. The gray hair is a sign of a, a lack of health. Here's what he said. Time was with some of you when you would cheerfully stand in the aisles with the crowd to listen and were glad that you had not a place to lean against if you might catch a good word from the master. So he's saying at one point when you first heard the word, it didn't matter. There's standing room only, no problem. Everybody's leaning against poles and walls. So you just have to stand with nothing to lean on and listen to an exposition. No problem. You were, you were geared up and ready to go. So you would stand there standing room only with nothing to lean on and hear the word of the Lord. 
goes on and says, but now it must be a soft cushion so you may sit easy. And the preacher must mind that he choose out goodly similes and choice words if he would hold your ear. You are dainty now. When you were hungry, you could eat gospel meat from the bone. Cut how it might be, but now it must be daintily carved or your stomach turns against it. When the appetite fails, the man's health is wrong and he needs a tonic. And perhaps the great physician will before long send him a bitter drought, which will make him right. My friends, you and I are all familiar with a languishing appetite for truth. And Sinclair Ferguson made such a clear point on this specific issue where he said, the challenge is not merely that we have a lack of appetite for truth, but when we compare the things that easily command our attention. What is it that you could easily devote your attentiveness to? You could give all of your focus and all of your energy and easily lose 15 minutes, half an hour, one hour, two hours, three hours bygone. Does your heart find that same attentiveness to the Lord Jesus Christ and his person? Or do you find my appetite languishes? My friends, this is a a call to us to, to not become content in being dull of hearing. Certainly, it's, it's weakness in all of us. And you think back to, to Peter and his life, right? The one who said, where else can we go, Lord? We just sang those words that he uttered, right? He was full of doubts. He often had fears. We saw in his life unbelief and pride and frustration at times, even with the words of Christ where he was arguing with Christ. And yet Peter also knew his Lord. He knew his Savior and he was attentive, He wanted to hear the words of Jesus. He knew the sound of the voice of his good shepherd. And he would always come back to it. My friends, the author here is concerned about the appetite of these believers. He's saying, because you don't really desire to hear it, I will say it, and it's not going to profit you. I was just thinking about this, and I think it's worth taking a time out and just giving a, a public service announcement on this very issue of appetite. I want you to think about this for a minute in, in terms of how it relates to philosophy of ministry. Okay, Philosophy of ministry is, is the way we describe how we do church. What we do and why we do it is philosophy of ministry. How does this doctrine, how does this teaching relate to philosophy of ministry? If you look back in the history of the American church beginning really in the, the 1940s, there began to be a concern that, that the clear truth of Scripture was was not being well received by the general public. And so the thought was, how do we do things that would be a bit more attractional? How could we remedy that issue? This is really what you began to see in in, uh, youth ministries, uh, starting then in the 1950s. They began to say, you know what we need is, is less content and more emphasis on emotional fulfillment. That's what people would like. We need to speak to the emotional challenges they're facing. We need to kind of reduce the content a little bit. And that will now create a ministry that is more effective. Begin to change the idea that God exists really more to help you on your journey of self-development. Christianity Today chronicles that after years of simplified messages that emphasize an emotional relationship with Jesus over content, 
teenagers learn that a well-articulated belief system is unimportant and might even be an obstacle to authentic faith. This feel-good faith works because it appeals to teenage desires for fun and belonging. It casts a wide net by dumbing down Christianity to the lowest common denominator of adolescent cognitive development and righteous motivation. My friends, it's fool's gold. An article in Christianity Today talked about the juvenilization of the church. And what they're talking about is that that was relegated initially to youth culture and then it began to infiltrate into college ministry and then what happens when all those people get out of college is now they come to big church and what we won them to we keep them with and so the dumbing down of church began to take place. You can see it all around in sermon series. The idea to make Jesus seem relatable, to make uh, the church seem like a place that you can come and never feel uncomfortable. In fact, looking around, there's such a trivialization, trivialization of spiritual things. The dumbing down of Christianity to the lowest common denominator. If you read a welcome page, oftentimes you can read things like a, a church that unchurched people love to attend. It will focus on helping you reach your potential. The idea that when we come to church, you should be able to come as you are, where you are, automatically feel comfortable. It's easy to listen to. There could be jokes, practical messages that are short and relevant, and we will even keep the kids entertained. And friends, that's the same promo that I read in the Albany Parks and Recreation magazine that comes to our house and talks about the family fun events that are going to happen throughout the city. And those are great events. I love going to them. But it's not church. And you, you see what's beginning to be traded off when we think in those ways? Never mind that the Bible says that man is lost in his condition. That mankind is in utter darkness. That he's blind and poor and naked and led astray in bondage. Weak, helpless, deceived and deceiving. Guilty, condemned and dead. My friends, that's not a popular message, but that is the most important message that we could give. And that you're in this world without hope unless you find salvation in the only mediator between God and man, which is Jesus, the crucified Christ and Lord. You understand that the answer to dull hearing is not to dumb down or change the message. We keep giving the same message. It's the power of God unto salvation. That's the message that people need to hear. So you give the gospel and someone says, meh, I want something else. What do you do? You say it again, the same message. They say, meh, I want something else. What do you do? You give the same message. See, the problem is not that we need a softer message. It's that God needs to work on that person's heart through the message to grant them faith and repentance. See, when someone doesn't want to hear the message, we call them to repent and trust Christ and believe in him. And the appetite problem is solved through being born again to a living hope. So what does that look like for a philosophy of ministry? Young people in the room, you can hear me on this one. I want you to pay attention for a second. If you're a teenager and you have within you no love for Jesus Christ and no appetite for truth, the problem is not that you're a teenager. Parents, if you have children, 
that don't love Christ and don't desire the truth, the problem is not that they're not old enough yet. It's not that they can't understand those truths. It's a spiritual problem. Adults in the room, if, if you don't desire Christ, if you don't love him, if you don't desire his truth, that's a, it's a spiritual problem. It's an appetite issue. As I started thinking about this in terms of ministry, why is it that we base ministry in the truth? Well, God told us to do it. And, and as you begin to think about, even in the lives of God's people, what teenager is there that's been regenerated by the power of God who's dealing with all of the fears and peer pressures and struggles of this life and out-of-control desires doesn't want to come and hear from the voice of God? Doesn't need truth for life. I mean, do you understand that we, we might need to explain things a little bit more simply, but it is the same message. Too often we think that the appetite issue means that we need to make a change. It's a couple weeks ago, I got an email in my inbox, the Christian Worship Leader Innovation Conference. Conference to innovate worship. And what in the world are we going to innovate? What are we going to revolutionize? We're going to have a conference on worship. Out of a conference called Pleasing Worship to God. Let's do a study on that. That would be a great conference. What does God think about our worship and what does he want from us? Not... What do we think about worship and what do we want from him? My friends, an appetite problem properly understood is not a sign that our ministry methods need to adapt to what people hunger for, but rather that our appetites need to change. Right? That's my takeaway from this. Lord, so often my appetite craves other things. The problem is not with you, Lord. It's, it's with my appetite. And so you might wonder, how is it that someone could stay a believer under weak or unbiblical or dumbed-down teaching for many, many years? I ask that question. People say, I have a, a family member or, or a dear friend, and I don't know. How is it that they can continually sit under teaching that's not faithful to the truth? Right here in the text, talks later about those who are used to living on milk, and they can't stomach solid food. You understand that there's a, a dumbing down that takes place that as you drink milk and drink milk and drink milk, what happens is your digestive system suddenly cannot process solid food the way it needs to. This is a perpetual juvenilization. Unspiritual people want unspiritual teaching. Immature believers want teaching that suits their immaturity. And so this creates what Ferguson calls a vicious cycle, right? That the, the more my appetite craves things other than the truth, the less I have an appetite for the truth. And the more I crave things other than the truth, the less I have an appetite for the truth. And I begin to get stuck in a vicious cycle. My friends, we easily look out and See last month and cringe when our governor signed into law the new law that allows Oregon students to graduate from high school without demonstrating that they possess the ability to write or do math. We'd say surely it's a problem for someone to have reached the level of graduating from high school and not possess those skills, but the answer is not to, to lower the bar or to change the rules, it's to address the root issue. So it is in the church. 
Friends, when we change the gospel, when we change the demands of Christ, when we change the exclusivity and centrality of his atoning work, we are not helping anyone. This is a gracious and gentle reminder. So often our ears get lazy. So often we lose an appetite. And so I would just ask you this morning as you contemplate, do you have an appetite for the truth? And I would say, or, or is your intake of truth primarily under compulsion? In other words, when it's assigned to you, you have some duty or obligation. When you think about how you relate to the truth, do you get agitated when your sin is pointed out by the truth or are you eager to see it? And not only see it, but long to be free from it. Do you want to learn about Jesus? Should you think about the person of Christ? Is he of interest to you? Is learning about him of interest to you? Does he command your attentiveness and your allegiance and your focus? Do you anticipate the Lord's day? Do you come eager to the preaching of the word? Or do you have a a dainty stomach, as Spurgeon would put it? Do you find that hearing the word quickly, it leaves your heart and mind? Or does it have a staying power within your soul that you say, although I am weak, I depend upon this truth? My friends, so easy it is to become dull of hearing. God is graciously saying here, open up your ear to this Savior. Spiritual babies lack appetite. They don't desire it. Secondly, they lack understanding. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need of someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So now he's using obligation language. This is the way things ought to be. Ought to be in what regard? Well, based upon the passage of time. So he's saying, you've been in Christ long enough now that more progress should be made spiritually than has been made for by this time. We don't know exactly how long it was, but it was probably a number of years. And the issue he's saying, I don't believe, is here's a list of checkboxes that you need to have filled out in the Christian life. Certainly progress is slow. But his idea here is is that you're, you're like a spiritual stick boy that, that doesn't have any spiritual muscles yet. And when he talks about the teaching, he's, he's not saying you're not in official capacity as a teacher, but he's saying if someone were to sit down with you, you would struggle to begin to explain the glories of Christ and how it is that man could be made right with God. See, so what had happened was these believers had enough years in Christ that they needed to be able to help new converts grow in the faith, to be able to teach them the fundamentals. Think about it this way, you've, you've been married long enough that you need to be able to teach other people about marriage, or you should be able to. You've been parenting long enough in the Lord that you ought to be able to teach others about parenting. You've been aging graciously and caring for your parents long enough that you ought to be able to teach others to do the same. And most importantly, you ought to be able to go to someone and explain this is how you can know God through Jesus Christ. See, the illustration here would be of, of someone teaching a child how to read in kindergarten. They master all of the basics. They leave, they come back four or five years later and they're expecting you've progressed in the easy readers from number one to number two to number three. Now you're reading chapter books. Instead they find you're struggling with the alphabet and phonics and putting letter sounds together. And you should be by now at the 
fifth grade reading level. I left you five years ago. I taught you how to read. I left you for five years. I'm coming back, and what I'm finding is we're back in kindergarten again. We're back learning the same things. Literally, the idea in the original is, is the ABCs, the fundamentals. It's the rudiments of the beginnings, the, the very basics. I understand that you probably feel inadequate. I feel inadequate all the time. I'm sure you feel inadequate as a teacher. That's not the issue. Can you open the Bible and explain the basics of Christianity to someone? The author is saying, if you're in Christ, you need to be able to do that. And what we see from this text is that time by itself doesn't result in maturity. You'll be in Christ a long, long, long time. And not maturing. He's saying by this time you ought to be teachers. But actually, we have to go back to square one with you guys. You'd be a 20-year-old spiritual adult. 20 years in Christ and a spiritual adult. Or you could be 20 years in Christ and be a spiritual baby. Time is not what makes the difference. I was thinking about this in terms of the harvest principle. I used to work with this health nut and uh, he would always say this um, kind of judging me, maybe appropriately so for what I was eating. And he would say, you know, whatever you're doing to your body now, you're going to see in 10 years. That was kind of like his little, you know, lecture that whatever it is that you're doing now, so you don't exercise now, fine. 10 years, you're going to feel it. Whatever you eat now, whatever you put in your body, you may not notice it now. 10 years, you're going to feel it. The 10 year principle. I don't know if it's even true, but Definitely stuck in my mind, and I still unfortunately think about it sometimes. But the biblical principle when it comes to your spiritual condition is, is this idea that, that we reap what we sow, and he's saying, listen, if you had simply been soft to the words of Christ, then by now you'd already be in the position of teaching. And yet because you've been dismissing the word of Christ, you haven't been growing, and so now you're behind. You're years behind, in fact. This church was. He's saying you need milk, not solid food. So milk obviously is very good for the the early stages of life when you're on a liquid diet. Your digestive system can't process yet all of the complexities and, and break them down of solid food. But at some point, right, milk would begin to no longer produce nourishment, but actually stunt growth. There needs to be progress made to other nutrients. And so I'd say it this way, if if you're young in the Lord, it is totally fine to be immature. It's expected. It's normal. We all start out as spiritual babies. We all start out drinking milk. That's normal and expected when you come to Christ. Yeah, I would say that even a baby Christian loves God's word. You take someone with no spiritual background, doesn't know the Bible at all. They get saved. They come into a church and they start sitting under exposition. They may not capture everything that's going on, but you know what they find? I can eat this diet. I love this food. I have a palate that's trained to it. I'm a, I'm a new baby. I've been saved. I've been in the Lord for a week. And I hear God's word proclaimed and I'm digesting it and I'm eating it and I have an appetite for it. I don't understand all of it, but it suits my palate. See, food imagery was common in Greco-Roman writings to indicate educational maturity, maturity levels. So he's saying that you've been in in the faith and yet your understanding doesn't go very deep. And it's not an intellectual problem. It's not an access to truth problem. It's a disposition problem. And so he comes and he shows the final attribute here of spiritual babies, what they lack in verse 13 and 14, and it's discernment. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Literally, the one who's unacquainted with. This is a, a child who can't speak yet. So this is getting kind of offensive, right? You're, you're a baby and you have the discernment of a child. Okay? Children are great. I love them. Not the most discerning people, right? That comes with time. You got to get a few injuries and get in trouble a few times and kind of learn through hard knocks and grow in your discernment. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. It's good to read that as parents sometimes. I reasoned like a child. Then when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There was a season of life that I lacked discernment as a child. So the idea here is that uh, you come and uh, are still staying in this position of uh, really being childlike in your ability to think through truth from error. Solid food, that would be doctrine then, verse 14, is for the mature. Who are the mature? Who are those who have grown up in the Lord? Well, it's those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. My friends, and you begin to think about discernment. Discernment comes through practice. Remember when I was a little kid, I used to, right, occasionally get up the nerve to to taste a sip of my parents' coffee because surely with the amount of it they drank, it seemed like it must be delightful. I would find it tastes disgusting. And what would they say to me? It's an acquired taste, right? It's an acquired taste. Okay, whatever that means, I haven't acquired it yet. The idea, right, is, is if, you, if you drink it, and, and uh, I was actually reading... Uh, early in America, right, we're big coffee drinkers because of the Boston Tea Party. Um, early on, right, coffee roasting was abysmal. The quality of beans was terrible. And so you, you read about uh, what Americans would write of the early coffee. And I mean, they would just call it like a bitter sludge. They would describe it with all these uh, horrible descriptors as they would drink it because they were used to tea and they had to develop a new palate. Uh, but the idea is that you can, in fact, acquire tastes for many things, right? Even things that would be bitter, and the picture here is that, that those who are mature in Christ have reached the acquired position through practice of growing in discernment. A lack of discernment, then, indicates a superficial walk with Christ. And this one kills me. So often I'll, I'll discern an issue improperly, and then the Lord will graciously walk me back to show me why I discerned it incorrectly. And I can trace it back to an area that I haven't applied the truth in my life. I haven't believed God. I haven't worked out that muscle yet. See, when you're around people who have a great deal of discernment, all it means is that they've been taking God's word and they've been applying it to life day after day. They've simply been submitting to the truth day after day. They've been trusting in the Lord and not leaning in their own understanding. And as that happens day after day after day, what you find is suddenly discernment is the result. Continually asking, what does God say? And then relying upon that truth builds discernment. And so what had happened in this church was they'd heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'd heard the message that Jesus was the Savior. Uh, they'd even expressed faith that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. They believed he was the Christ. They even undergo, underwent suffering as a result of that. Yet by and by in their Christian life, 
the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ began to lose center stage. Began to get caught up in other things. They began to focus their attention other places. They began to place their trust in other things. And what happened was instead of pressing on into maturity, they were found spiritually weak. Now, weakness was such a condition that as this author is beginning to set forth the answer to the problem, which is Christ himself, he's saying, I need to keep pausing to taking breaks here to warn you that when you hear the word of Christ, you've got to receive it by faith. There's a dullness that has crept into your heart. You might be sitting here and thinking, man, what do I, what do, I do if I've lost too much time or so it feels? I feel like I'm supposed to be a teacher, and at this point I'm not. Do I, I relate to that. In many ways I relate to that. You were sitting down with a, a man to be discipled by, and he was... Um, Phenomenal theologian. I'd heard him teach a class. I was so eager to learn from him. And we sat down and very first discipleship, he opened up. Hebrews said, I want you to read uh, chapter 5. I want you to read verse uh, 12, 13, and 14 to me. And I didn't know what it said, so I turned it there. And I'm really eager for our first discipleship. What's he going to say to me? And Okay, by this time you have to be teachers and you need milk and solid foods for the mature. And, and he said, this is going to be where we start. This is the starting point with you. I've watched you. This is where we need to begin. See, so he was willing to, willing to tell the truth as to where those things began. And so I'd say, if you feel like you've lost time in this, I would say there's not a person in the room that can't relate to that. And it's okay. It's not what the Lord is calling you to here. What he's saying is that you are to incline your ear to the Lord Jesus himself and to come out of Neverland into spiritual maturity. My friends, God does not reject spiritually weak people. Those are the very people that he is sympathetic toward and deals gently with because he is a great savior and he is the one you need. Jesus himself said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So even as you think about Maturing in the Christian life, if you find a dullness of hearing, the Lord himself is the one that has the remedy. The great physician has the tonic that your soul needs. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're so often spiritually dull. Thankfully, you know our frame. As the psalmist said in Psalm 103, you know our frame that we are but dust. Uh, what a comfort that is uh, to think that, uh, Lord, you hear those who call upon you. And as the psalmist would say over and over, uh, Lord, you would testify to believing you and trusting you and, and, and yet asking you to help him in his unbelief, asking you to incline his ear to understanding. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd be gracious to us to open our ears, to open our eyes, uh, to soften our hearts. Lord, we confess that we're often uh, full of an appetite uh, that's been filled with uh, passing trinkets, Lord, things that won't last a year, let alone our lifetime or eternity. Lord, we find it difficult to stay our focus and attention, uh, just like children who struggle with attentiveness. We struggle with spiritual attentiveness. And yet, Lord, we know that you're greater even than that. And so we pray for your help, Lord, 
uh, that we would see our Savior in all of his glory and that we'd be compelled by him. Uh, Lord, there's nowhere else that we want to go for you have the words of eternal life. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.